Athletic Brewing. I cracked open an Upside Dawn Golden Athletic Brew. And let me say this. No matter what you're looking for in a great non-alcoholic beer, the answer is always athletic. Great flavor? It's athletic. Award-winning styles? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Fit for all times. That's a registered trademark, guys. Enjoy them anytime, anywhere, without ever slowing down your summer. Beach days, music festivals, swim meets, camping, late nights, early mornings, literally wherever summer takes you. And here's the best part to me, zero hangovers the next day. Mm -hmm. This summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer or brew you need to know. Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company. Fit for all times. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. That is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan Moylan here from The Square Ball with Michael Normanson from The Square Ball and Phil Hay from The Athletic. Uh, twice a week now, The Phil Hay Show. Mondays and Fridays. Um, normally on a Friday, we would debrief the press conference that Jesse Marsh has just had. You would normally come here straight from Thorpe Arch and we discuss that now because of the, the way that the fixtures have fallen with the Thursday night game. That's not the case. There's no pre-match press conference. No, although it does feel as if the press conference was about an hour ago because um, we were sitting down there at about 11 o'clock at night at Leicester so um, yeah, it's, kind, and it's kind of the same thing just a timestamp. it's 10 o'clock on Friday morning isn't it, it? Is. So, so not a lot's happened in between times not a lot of sleep certainly and it's given us plenty to talk about yes absolutely um, Monday's show is where we come back and talk about the game that has just gone on, gone on across the weekend but um, by the quirk of the fixtures we have a game to talk about last night as if you didn't already know which is Leicester we'll get into that in just a second um, just a quick reminder that you can read Phil's stuff the post-mortem from Leicester um, on The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Pound a month for six months, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Probably the most obvious place to start then, Phil, is the fact that you were there in the stadium last night. Only 3,000 Leeds fans were. They made their feelings known. What was it like? I don't think I've ever seen an away end turn quite as dramatically as they did last night. I've seen away ends vent many, many times and, and many times at Leeds because over the years there have been many occasions where that was likely to happen or, or very liable to happen because of the way the team were playing or because of the, the way the club were operating because Leeds didn't for a long period seem to be going anywhere and that generates frustration. Last night, it really did explode from the point at half-time of the booing as Leeds went off, which there's been booing through the season and, and more often than not, and I think almost exclusively, it's been aimed at officials. You know, you have kind of poor results and there's a bit of dissent but you feel as if it's been aimed at, at the referee there was no ambiguity at all um, at half time last night it, it was definitely aimed at Marsh it was definitely aimed at the players it was definitely aimed at the performance and it grew and it grew and it grew through the second half through chance for Bielsa which I think was a definite two fingers aimed at Marsh um, if not the board uh, through um, booing and um, dissent when Luis Sinistera was replaced and, and left the pitch, it was so severe and it was so audible and so sustained, particularly through the second half, that you started to realise that it was nothing really to do with Leicester and the game per se. 
it was a message to say that there had been and the, that there was a, a serious lack of faith in this. You know, it, it was people saying, we don't believe in this. Um, it was more than just people taking issue with, with one night, you know, more than people taking issue with one performance. There was a, a much bigger picture to it, I thought. And it leaves Jesse Marsh in an extremely difficult position. You know, it really does put him in the, the tightest of corners because the away end of, of, and the, the away crowd at football clubs are a really good weather vein. And I don't mean that in the way that that word's used these days, which tends to mean that you kind of sway with the wind and, you know, you, your opinion changes depending on how the wind's blowing. They are the wind. I mean, they tell you what the prevailing view is, what the prevailing mood is. And, and it was very, very angry last night. You could feel the away end seething. And I think that tells you that Marsh is in big trouble. It does. You know, There is absolutely no way that a head coach can come off after a game like that. And he didn't try to do this. But there's no way you can come away from a game like that and pretend that it hasn't happened. You know, it's, it was very audible. It was very obvious. Um, it leaves a, a big division, I think, between the crowd and the head coach. He was applauded off after Arsenal only earlier this week, start of this week. So what's changed there, Phil? What's changed is that the, the Arsenal performance wasn't sustained in any way against Leicester, nor was Arsenal a repeat of what had come before. You know, this has been a fairly poor run of form, to say the least, and, and with uh, several poor performances in there, Arsenal stood out as being considerably better than a lot of them. Um, but, uh, I mean, th- that was the crux of my match piece after the Arsenal game, was that, yes, they played well, and yes, you can draw, you know, that classic comment of, we'll, we'll draw positives from this. But it meant nothing if Leeds didn't win subsequent games. And Marsh was saying after the Arsenal game, and I felt I felt in an identical way, really, it had to be followed by results. You know, there was absolutely no use this week with Leicester and Fulham of saying, oh, we've played well, but took nothing from the game. You know, this is where it matters. This is where you have to deliver. And I found myself thinking as the game went on last night, and I'd sort of been thinking this on the drive down because I'd been listening to Five Live and they'd been talking about Aston Villa away at Fulham and obviously Leicester at home to, uh, to Leeds. And they said two under-pressure managers tonight, um, Stephen Gerrard with Villa, um, Brendan Rodgers with Leicester. And I was thinking potentially a third one as well, you know, with Marsh at Leeds, that they're not in great shape results-wise at the moment. And that's where they're at. I, I think you could look at the Arsenal game and say, mark of a good team playing like that. But I think to play like that against Arsenal, when you're not expected to take anything... And then to play as they did at Leicester, when you really are expected to win and you need to win, I think is the mark of, of a poor team. I think it is. Or it's a mark of a team that causes concern. And I don't think it's passed anybody by that the start this season over 10 games has been worse than the start over 10 games last season. Um, and I think by this stage last season, a fair few of us were starting to feel concerned about where it was going. So any worry about the form, any worry about the results is, to my mind, absolutely legitimate. What were your thoughts when you saw the team sheet? I was surprised. Four changes in total. One Furpo in for strike, which was enforced because of injury. So that speaks for itself. I think we probably all accept that Bamford up front was a call we'd all have made um, after the way he played in the second half against Arsenal. Cooper, I thought, should have played last night, particularly because the change was coming um, to the, on the side of the defence where he plays. Um, and I do think he's a, a safer pair of hands there than, than Urente. And dropping Harrison... It seemed like a very big gamble. I know Marsh has been talking recently about the need to give Somerville minutes, the need to get Somerville into the team. But Harrison is a big player in this side and, and Harrison is a pretty dependable player. I think he's shown himself to be more competent at Premier League level than Somerville on the basis that Somerville has hardly played at this level. It didn't seem to me to be the night to be taking taking risks and taking gambles. 
And Marsh was saying afterwards that he was worried about, you know, Cooper playing three times, having to, having to cope with a three-game week, having been out for so much of the summer and, and not played too much this season. I think you worry about that on Sunday against Fulham. I don't think you preempt the Fulham game by pulling him out of a match that you need to win or need to take something from. And you remember when we discussed the, the possibility that four points from these two games would be a good, you know, good enough return. And I was saying that that's, you know, so if you take a point against Leicester and beat Fulham, then, then okay, everybody's relatively happy with that. The problem with only taking a point from Leicester is that it ups the stakes of the Fulham game. And the problem with losing at Leicester is that it ups the stakes massively. And it seems to me that on a night like last night, you play a high percentage team. You play the players that you think are most reliable or the players that you would depend on generally. You look to get a result and then you manage the Fulham game. Um, that felt back to front to me. And the left side of the defence last night was just a massive weakness. And the elephant in the room here is the World Cup. In another three weeks' time, they've got five weeks off. They can rest up and recuperate again then. It's a mini pre-season, isn't it? It is. I mean, I don't think... I don't think that changes the fact that if you've been out for a long time um, and you have either niggly um, injury issues or whatever else, three games in a week can catch up with you at any time. That's definitely the case. And you do have to manage players and, and manage their physique, irrespective of what's coming further down the line. You're right, there will be a long period to, to rest. But when sports scientists and club medical people analyse players, they look for them straight into the red zone, you know, at a point in which you think that they, they might pick up injuries. And that's when they, they tend to be cautious with them. As I say, I just think that if this week you and and okay, perhaps from an aerial point of view, you would much rather have Cooper up against um, somebody like Mitrovic than you would um, Urente up against Mitrovic. But I think when you're out of form and you need results, the game to deal with is the one right in front of you. The game to to prioritise and and to think about. And I can't help thinking that you know, Marsh said he he didn't think there was much wrong actually with too many of the individual performances. He thought they were they were okay. And undoubtedly Leeds did have chances and there were points in the game where it could have been different and where, where things could have shifted, particularly the, the shot from Sinister off the bar, um, the, the the effort from Somerville at 1-0 down, which he probably should have stuck away. You know, it was a, a poor finish in the end. But I can't help feeling that now he looks back at, at the night, he'll wish that he had started with Cooper and probably wish that he'd started with Harrison. And given that Cooper had to play 45 minutes anyway, the argument's kind of moot. Yeah, it's kind of undermined his own... Changes there, hasn't it, to an extent? And again, I, I see the problem there because Robin Koch has picked up a yellow card. You know, the way Leicester was, were playing, it was all trying to catch Leeds with a high line to get him behind, you know, to um, to put pressure on the centre-backs and the full-backs in that way. And that does invite challenges. It does invite bookings. I guess, again, Marsh will be thinking to himself, I do not want to lose Robin Koch for the for the Fulham game. But, you know, they... They needed a result last night. They did. I'd have played Cooper and I'd have played Harrison. Even though, was, even though I don't think some of them had a terrible game, I would have played Harrison. To say there was nothing wrong with individual performances, how can he possibly have watched that game and come to that conclusion? Because there's an own goal from Cock. Fair enough, these things do happen. It has been good this season. But the left side of defence, as we've touched on, Junior Furpo looks completely lost out there. Like I, I don't have any faith in him going forward or defending. He seems to have absolutely no idea what he's doing. His decision-making is, is appalling. Alongside Llorente is terrible. Bamford and Rodrigo both achieved absolutely nothing apart from Rodrigo once again playing playing the opposition to your own goal. I thought there were several absolutely awful performances in there. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I, I tweeted after nine minutes and I said, Leicester having a first nibble at Leeds left side, pulling Furpo forward before playing him behind, dragging Llorente out wide to track the runner. I mean, that happened time and time again in the first half. And it wasn't 100% responsible for the first goal. I mean, that was largely down to Rocker losing the ball 
in a, an area where, where you just did not want to lose it. But Leicester were, working, were looking for that and were working that side of the pitch. And the second goal was essentially all about that. Get Fulpo out of position, attack his area, force Llorente to come wide and then recycle the ball as quickly as you can to the other side of the box where somebody, i.e. Harvey Barnes, is likely to be completely unmarked. And you, you felt before half-time that you could see that goal coming over and over and over again because of the because of the weakness there. I mean, a part of me feels sorry for Fuppo in that he he does not seem to be able to get a steady run in the team. He does look lost. Um, tactically, it doesn't seem like he's ever um, been able to to make himself fit. Um, part of me just thinks it's not the answer. Um, a large part of me thinks it's not the answer. And I think now you start to look at it, you, you go back to the discussions everybody was having during the summer. You know, do we need another left back? And I think the answer is yes. Strike, from what I'm told, is very likely to be fit for the weekend. I think 100% he comes back into the team. I think he has to. But Strike's not a left back. You know, that is one area where the squad is incomplete. What does your gut tell you on this one, Phil? Is there, is there a way back for Jesse Marsh from here? I'm not sure there is. It, it seems hard to see, or it feels hard to see one, because losing the away end to that extent makes me think that even if a, there are results that placate the crowd for a certain period of time, that opposition to him, that kind of resentment or frustration is going to be forever waiting around the corner to bust out unless Leeds suddenly turn out, turn into an outstanding team, you know, the kind of sort of easy to admire side that they were against Chelsea and, and were in a lot of respects against Arsenal. If that was coming every week, sustained for two, three, four months, then yeah, there would be a shift in attitude and people would, you know, people would want to, people would want to stick with it, people would have faith in it. But I think what you realised coming away last night was that every poor performance and every poor result is going to lead to more of that. I mean, Sunday is going to be an incredibly delicate atmosphere. It really is. And, and Leeds will have to play. I mean, the, my understanding as of last night, as of Thursday night, was that he, he would be there for the Fulham game. He was speaking afterwards as if he expected to be there for the Fulham game. He was asked a lot about his future and support from the board. And he did front up to the questions, but said that, you know, as far as he was concerned... He thought the board would back him. He felt that they were unified. He, he thought they would they would stick this out. And that seems to be, I mean, these things change, but that seems to be the message as it stands at the moment. But they're going to have to play well on Sunday. There is going to be no leeway for a poor performance at the weekend. The only thing I can compare it to where a manager has come back was Grayson at Hereford, where that felt like it was one of those nights where it really kicked off in the away and everyone hated it, basically. They just, they wanted the whole, the whole thing to change. It was miss, Trundle missed a penalty. And after that, we sorted ourselves out and I think we finished that season with a with an incredibly good run. I think we only lost once after that in you know and that was that was in February was that game. So it was that was a time when you can come back from it. But it needs something spectacular, I think, to get to get away from this the feeling that this just isn't working. That was very, very early in Grayson's reign though. That was a couple of months in. And yeah, that was a really you know, really bitter evening. Um and looking looking back on it and it was spoken about a lot as um as time went on and the form improved under Grayson, there's a, there's a bit of a tipping point and a point at which he'd said to some of the players, either get a grip or or go, you know, and 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 they they did get on top of the form. They signed Sam Soji, if memory serves me correctly, so they were able to make changes to the team. They were able to address it um, to a certain extent. But I'm not even sure that night. It's so long ago now. It's it's quite hard to remember. But I'm not sure that the vitriol was aimed at um, Grayson particularly. I think it was. It was general dissatisfaction with the team and with the, the the form of the club. The fact that Leeds were down in League One and making such heavy weather of getting out of it 
in a season when at the beginning of it they'd been fancied to certainly go up automatically or to, to win win the title. It was so volatile last night. I feel for, it's not a nice position to be in. I, I, it, you know, I was talking a while back. I was on the the mentality podcast with Stevie Ward and I am the ex Leeds Rhinos player and was talking about management, saying I I just don't see the appeal. I just do not see the appeal. I know when it goes well, it's great, but so much of your time in management seems to be firefighting and being at risk of the sack or struggling to to meet expectations or to satisfy people. It's tough, but it is also elite sport and people get judged get judged pretty ruthlessly. It has felt like this has been coming with the Marsh team. It it was there last season, I think. It was it was early days and we were in a relegation fight and people were trying to see the best and trying to stay behind the team. But if you look at his first home game against Villa, it was obviously it was far too early in his reign to judge it, but people were sick of it at that point. I wrote after the Arsenal game last weekend that the, the number of really, really good performances you could count on one hand and, and probably on a few fingers, it has mostly been games in fits and starts. And that's not to say that there haven't been far more games than that they've deserved to win or deserved to take points from. But it hasn't settled into a, a fluent pattern of knowing exactly what to expect and, and more to the point, knowing that what you're expecting will, you know, will deliver the goods more often than not. I still feel as if there is this battle to establish his plan in a way that it dominates consistently. There's, there is clearly a bit of a battle to establish what the best eleven is. And, you know, I, I think the tinkering last night didn't help. I don't think it, it was the right move. But they're under pressure. As I say, if, if if last season went the way it did after a start of 10, you know, 10 points from 10 games, then you cannot look at nine points from 10 games and say, well, this is different. You know, this is this is a different situation. They, they're in They're in trouble. They are. And to go back to the previous point, if you're looking at Forrest and Villa and Wolves and Leicester and thinking that they've had a poor start to the season and, and are a bit up against it, what's the difference? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So we got an insight into what it was like inside the stadium there, Phil. What was it like inside the press room afterwards? Because it's an intriguing thing, that, because as fans, we don't ever get to sit in that room. We see the clips from it, we hear the reports and stuff, but you're the man who, who gets the access to that room. So what was it like in there last night? Was there any tension in there? Yeah, no, there is. And, and those are the press conferences that kind of generate the most anticipation because there are points, always points in a season where a coach is under pressure um, or seem under pressure or you might perceive that. But you, you have to pick your moment and be fair about, you know, separating, I guess, the odd poor result or poor little spells from, from periods that actually start to look like, like crisis. But when you have a night like last night where the away end are as vociferous as they are and, and when the, the descent is so obvious and the pressure on a head coach is, is as obvious too, 
you know that it's going to have to be spoken about and you know that it's going to have to be addressed. And you know that in a press conference like that, most of the questions are going to boil down to, do you feel for your job? You know, do you, uh, do you think you have the confidence of the board? Do you expect to, to remain in your position? And you tend to find as well with managers as they go through periods of, of stress and, and as results or results decline or, or their authority or the security of the job declines, that there will be a period where the very combative, or most of them, um, not so much Marsh actually, but most of them will be very combative about questions related to their position or their future. But you get to a stage where suddenly they start to sound like they fear the worst or, or they know what's coming. As an example, have a listen to Steven Gerrard um, after Villa's defeat to Fulham last night. He was sacked almost instantly after the game. And I wouldn't have said Gerrard has been wildly defensive um, when it's come to questions about him and his position, because I think he can see that um, Villa, uh, could see that Villa were out of form. But he, as good as said, look, I, I can see the situation as much as you can. You know, we'll have to see what happens. And as soon as you start speaking like that, you, you kind of know what's coming. I always remember Thomas Christensen's last press conference at, at Leeds. They'd lost badly to Cardiff. And there hadn't really been any firm indication from the board that he was in serious trouble, but the results had turned for the worse. And, and you, you felt like it, it wasn't going to last for too much longer. And he almost, t- I, I don't know still whether he knew what was coming, but he certainly suspected what was coming. And he was he was talking in that press conference about, about how much of a, an honour it had been to manage Leeds, how much he'd enjoyed it, this, that and the other. It was almost somebody getting their goodbyes in before the club came and said to him, listen, it's it's time to go. So yeah, no, it, it was, it was, it, it is tense. You look to see what the head coach's reaction is. Are, are they confident of staying around? Do they think they'll stay around? Marsh spoke a lot about the Fulham game, which automatically made you think that he expected to be in the dugout on Sunday. And I know there are times when managers can be quite delusional about that. You know, that right, well, we just look to the next game. Um, but in reality, everybody knows what's lying in store for them. I think last night he did think and, and did give us the impression that, yeah, it, it would be Fulham next. In no way pretending that um, there wasn't a massive amount staked on Fulham and, and that the pressure wasn't piled high. But yeah, they, they, they can be intriguing those nights because you're never quite sure what's going to be said. I almost wish I hadn't mentioned Thomas Christensen because it's uh, it's reminding me of the way that Victor Alter picks managers and how the, the general success rate is not great. Well, the, the problem with this one is that there was a lot of time spent thinking about Marsh and, and a lot of attention paid to the data around him, what he'd done at Salzburg, what he'd done at Leipzig. And he was very much seen as the answer to Bielsa's downfall. You know, it was it was Marsh that they wanted to go for. It wasn't an interim appointment. You know, the, the plan had been to appoint him in the summer, but on the basis that the plan had been to appoint him in the summer, that tells you how much confidence the board had in him. So they need this to work. You know, they, they needed Marsh to work for their credibility and the credibility of the decision to, to go for him um, in the first place. So we digress slightly. But yeah, I didn't think Marsh's body language was defeated last night in the way that, say, Christensen's was on that occasion. But I think you could see that he was in trouble. And actually, I think if you listen back to the last couple of podcasts that we've done, I've sort of been saying more and more that in his body language and in the tone of, of his comments, you could sense that the... the kind of need for results was starting to grow. And Victor Otter's credibility is on very, very shaky ground right now, isn't it, with the current state of play? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, from what we're told about Marsh, Otter had looked at around about 40 coaches in Europe. Um, and, and the reason for this was because Bielsa, as everybody knows, was always on a short-term contract. So it's season to season, which meant that 
at any kind of given moment, or certainly in, in the short term, you could lose him. You know, he could go and suddenly you had to replace him and you had to decide what to do. So Marsh was one of the people that ought to focused in on. Um, his analysis, the conclusion he drew from it was that Marsh was one of the best coaches out there in Europe, that he would suit Leeds, um, that he would suit Leeds as a transitional option from Bielsa, which I have to say more and more, I struggle to see much transition at all, apart from the, the focus that there is on pressing and running and, and movement, but it's different. You know, it's not the same. Uh, well, can, uh, I ask, can I ask them, Phil, about that? Yeah. Was, was he appointed based on algorithm, for want of a better phrase? Was, was this just a... Was this a data-based appointment? Not purely because they had spoken. You know, they'd, they'd been in touch. They'd, um, they'd spoken certainly more than once over the years. Again, because um, I think the first time they were in touch was during COVID um, back in 2020. And again, to preempt the possibility that, you know, at the end of that season or out of the blue, Leeds would have to find themselves a, a new head coach and they wanted to have a fair idea of, of who that would be. So it's not as if there wasn't any personal interaction and it wasn't as if there wasn't any background done into him. But it was essentially analysis of his football, you know, analysis of his numbers, analysis of his data that that convinced them that he was the, the coach to go for. And, you know, I was told that even had they gone down last season, he would have stayed. You know, they, they would have backed him in those circumstances as well. And then the recruitment through the summer was done to fit this system and this style of play. You know, the, the, the players who came in were designed for this. So, you know, there has been, they have kind of put their chips on Marsh um, in quite a big way. And it'll be a big concern that it's not working. Returning to the press conference question, Phil, is the part of you when you sat in that room kind of divorces the sport from this and sees it almost from a more human level? Does that ever happen? There are occasions where it is like that. So to give you an example, if you remember when Brian McDermott was sacked on the Friday night, um, on that mad Friday in January 2014, he was reappointed over the weekend by the village idiots and then on the Monday held a press conference um, at Thorpe Arch which went on for ages. I mean, Chilino could outdo McDermott with length of press conference. Bielsa also, although it has to be said with Bielsa, you had the translation issues. So, you know, for the, the, the time of the Bielsa press conferences, you could almost cut them in half because it was always going to take longer because of the fact that it had to be translated from, um, from Spanish into English. But that McDermott presser, went on forever and it was a long discussion with a manager who had basically been hung out to dry on that Friday and then reappointed and was in the most remarkably weird position and actually was never able to reassert his authority and was never going to be able to to do that from that point because of because of what had happened and as he said subsequently because players in the dressing room who either aren't playing or don't particularly like you or aren't necessarily buying into what you're doing are going to abandon you as soon as they think that you're toast, you know, and, and I think that did happen to a large degree. Um, without a doubt, you look at coaches and sympathise or empathise with the position that they're in when the pressure comes on. Because even though managers get payoffs and even though managers can end up being very rich and, and very well off without ever having achieved much and having gone through jobs where they, they haven't lasted for long. I mean, some of them have made careers out of that. Well, they have. So let's assume that there are a few out there who don't mind that and are quite happy to take the humiliation um, or the, the whipping of, of being sacked on the basis of the money that, that it earns you and, and everything else. Most of them must hate being in that position. You don't, it's, it's like public humiliation, isn't it? You, you, your ability and your quality as a coach is questioned because of what's going on on the pitch. You have to answer for that. 
Um, as I say, there are periods where you can knock back questions about your future, with the points where you can resent that or, or take them on. But equally, you eventually get into the ballpark where you just have to face up. You've got to face facts. You know, you, you have to face facts that in, in the situation Leeds are in now, they are where they are in the table. They've got nine points from 10 games. There is no credibility in sitting there saying, well, it's fine, you know, there's no problem with, with going in the right direction, particularly when they away and react as they as they did yesterday. So yeah, it, it is it, it, it can be difficult. And I think you, you tend to sympathize more if you feel like the manager who's speaking to you is acknowledging what's going on, you know, and is appreciating what's going on and is not trying to bluff the way through it and is not trying to pretend that everything's okay. But as I say, that there usually comes a stage where that's very difficult to do anyway. The default setting in football, though, is to be very bullish, isn't it? Right until the end, because it's it seems almost showing a weakness is seen as is seen as pushing you towards the door in these situations. But once you see the writing on the wall, I think human nature stops you from from doing that. You know, you can you can keep a wall up for a certain period of time, but eventually it it gets on top of you. There are some who there are some who react in different ways. There are some who aren't really like that. I mean, the most kind of I guess spiky press conference I was ever involved in was Dennis Wise's first one after the minus 15 point deduction and that was you know somewhere where they'd been in administration and we'd been I was at the Evening Post we'd been banned and we'd been writing all sorts and it was the famous afternoon where he had that massive stack of photocopies of my articles on the desk <laughs> as, we, as we went in and the one on the top Uh-oh. said the one on the top said United home in disgrace which was after the tour of Germany and the Czech Republic in the last game we finished with two red cards and you know it was it was it was not it was not great. Um so, you know, he 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 got stuck in um as as I kind of expected that he would. But then weirdly enough, I, I sat down for him uh, with him for a chat afterwards and from that point we probably had the, the, the only period two or three months where the two of us weren't kind of at each other and in the end when I, I did I did one sit down interview with Wise which um, was kind of overshadowed by Gus Poyet then leaving on the same day, which wasn't ideal. But it was, despite what people think of Wise, and I was never a fan, but um, he, he was an interesting guy. You know, when you started to speak to him and get his thoughts on things, he was incredibly bullish and he, he had the thickest skin going. I remember finishing the, the article by saying, there's a Russian proverb, proverb, which is, if you scare the wolves, don't go into the woods. And that was wise, you know, he was just happy to wander into the forest and in that period and fight with whoever, you know, was was not was not bothered. But even towards the end, it was different with him um, because, you know, he was away from his family, his family down in London. I think he just ran out of steam with the job rather than Leeds actively looking to get rid of him. And he went to that director's role up in Newcastle. But the results did turn latterly. And I remember being down at Luton. Um, they'd drawn, I think Luton had equalised in, in the last minute. And there was a sort of resignation in him, you know, where he was... I remember the last question being about Enoch Shawumni, who I think had agreed to go to Bristol City rather than come to Leeds, um, a deal Leeds were expecting to do and, and did subsequently do later, but didn't do at that point. And we asked him about that and kind of expecting Wise to kick off a little bit, you know, or at least have a bit of a dig about it. And he just said, bless him. And, and that kind of made you think, you might have given up here. Yeah, I, I don't know whether your your heart's still in this. And sure enough, he he was gone um, quite soon after. So, yeah, I, I think I, I think most people do try to be resistant to resistant to the the scrutiny which suggests that they're underperforming or they're they're struggling. But sometimes it's impossible to hide, isn't it? And and in those circumstances, you're best to just face up to it. 
I guess it's one of the few opportunities you really get to test the temperature within a club, isn't it? Because um, I've been chatting to um, an American journalist who is surprised at the contrast in access. You know, in America, they just walk about. You'd be like, you'd be walking around in the changing room, basically, yeah. um, if you were over in the States. Full access to the dressing room, the locker rooms, the behind-the-scenes areas, chatting to all the players, or even like building relationships like it used to be back in the in the olden days. Yeah. Um, well, like Don Waters would have the phone number of X, Y, or Z, wouldn't he? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, after the uh, press conference on Wednesday, before the Leicester game, we were all chatting on about the different things that different broadcasters ask of uh, managers. So, for example, this week you'll have seen that Amazon like to have managers pitch side. Um, so they, they do the, the sort of standard interview, but they like to have them pitch side around the table with whoever um, whoever's doing the, the, the discussions. And it varies, you know, it varies with what Sky do and BT Sport do. You'll probably have seen the video of Thomas Frank and Graham Potter together before Brentford and Chelsea. And, and I think Jake Humphrey saying to Thomas Frank, do you want to ask him anything? You don't just want to ask him a, a question. And that is actually, that is starting to move quite a distance away from what we've been used to in, in the Premier League, where it's, it's far more controlled. Not by much, but, you know, little by little. So we started talking about the, the next step. And I know from time to time this has been asked for. I, I think Satanta might have asked for this back when they were doing televising games um, back in the day for cameras in the dressing room, that old chestnut, which, which people would love. And somebody said... Well, they have it in rugby league, you know, and I quite like, and okay, you can't hear anything. It's not audible, but you can see what's going on. And and we were saying, the thing is, if something goes on in rugby league, it's a big story within rugby league. But if you have a camera in the dressing room at halftime of Liverpool v City and one or other player has somebody up against the wall or there's an argument going on, it's everywhere for days. And there's just simply no reason why clubs would allow that to happen. They don't want people to to get that close in the way that Bielsa wouldn't let Amazon go in the dressing room for the for the leads documentary and someone sent me a, a TikTok video of Charlie Austin over in Australia um, the club he plays for at the moment and there's a camera in the dressing room there where he is tearing into another defender and again it makes for great television it makes for great viewing but at Premier League level you're just not gonna you're not gonna allow that and it is there is definitely this kind of shield around people which to an extent that has to be Although oh, some silent footage of Liam Cooper trying to explain basic defendants and junior furpo at half time would be <laughs> would be something to behold. I mean, like a performance art mime. Yeah. She's kinda of going, no junior, not that way. Stand over there. I Go. think I think the problem with that as well is is that, you know, they're gonna even if you played amateur sport, you know that there are arguments and disagreements all the time, aren't there? That's how you have it out um when games are going wrong or things aren't aren't quite working. And a lot would be made of it, and I think too much um, would be made of it. But, you know, from the manager's point of view, they are these days being asked to do more and more and more. And it feels as if every television contract um, that's agreed by the Premier League asks additional, you know, puts additional strain on them when it comes to media commitments. And they have to do these media commitments. This, the stuff that is in the TV contracts has to be done. Otherwise, they'll be fined. I mean, there was a discussion with Bielsa at the start of the first Premier League season when his media commitments jumped massively from what he had to do in the EFL. You know, this is what you... You have to do, you know, sometimes you'd have like six or seven broadcasters down the side of the pitch post-match. And, and so the question was, if I don't do all of this, how much money do I have to pay? You know, like what what will I be fined? And it's not an inconsiderable um, amount of money. And, and I'm pretty sure Guardiola has had to pay money from time to time for not doing certain interviews. It's all, it's all pretty strict. But there are still occasions where managers will dodge some of it, particularly when the heat is on, because you might as well. Well, they say a week is a long time in football. I jump back to the pre 
Leicester press conference and the the phone going off and it was all sweetness and light, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and but but then it has to be said with Marsh, it's really not sweetness and light. You know, he's not that, the sort of manager who turns up looking for a fight at every press conference. You know, you you see a few of them over the years, and it's always it's always quite an eye opener when you're away at other clubs. You know, to see what goes on with other managers. You know, to to see how it is with Klopp and how it is with Guardiola, how it is with Ten Hag, how it was with, with Solskjaer, what their sort of reaction is. Because you, you get in your bubble and you get very used to dealing with the coach that you're dealing with. But it's only really in when you're sat in a press conference environment that you properly find out what a manager's like and, and how, I guess, how bristly they can be um, and, and how difficult they can be. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. To Fulham then, is it all on this one, Phil? Um, we are reacting to news that uh, Graham, uh, who's at the YEP, I don't know if you've heard of that guy, he's, uh, he's just tweeted saying that Leeds United have no plans for an immediate managerial change which echoes what you were saying at the at the start of the show, Phil. It looks Define like. immediate. Well, the word immediate there does a lot of uh, a lot of heavy lifting, doesn't it? So it does it does feel like due to what's happened in the run up to this and the run of form that the pressure on Sunday is now fairly incredible. You described it as delicate earlier, Phil. Well, it's it's going to be, and people will go to the ground wondering what's going to happen. They'll they'll have the question what's going to happen in the game, but there will also be inevitably the question, and and we'll be thinking the same of what happens if it doesn't go particularly well. Fulham have had a much better start than I expected and 15 points from 11 games I think they'll be extremely happy with that they'll also be extremely happy that Mitrovic having had this reputation of does it in the championship doesn't do it in in the Premier League has actually started scoring goals in this division this season and that's helping them massively I mean he's going to be an incredibly key player on Sunday they're going to have to manage him extremely closely I think Liam Cooper will start as I said earlier, for that reason, I think aerially he's best placed to compete with Mitrovic. But yeah, um, it's, it's really hard. It's very hard to, to see, I think, if they lose to Fulham on Sunday, 
it's very hard to promote the message that this is going well and that this looks like it's working and that Leeds are in good shape. Um, I think they very much need a result. I think they need to win. If they do get that win, does it reframe things entirely? Well, I think it potentially keeps Marsh ticking over. My concern about the reaction last night was that it seems to me now that at best the frustration lies dormant unless Leeds suddenly evolve into a very impressive team who become who who light it up more often than not, turn over results really regularly, look like they're developing as as they should be. Unless it's like that, it will be kind of dormant frustration that is lying in the background waiting to come out again. And it's not to say that Marsh can't get through that, because it is always possible. You know, you, you can things can turn, things can can get better. But I don't particularly look at the team and the squad and think that the resources are there in such a big way to to help. You know, again, looking at Bamford last night, he was he, he wasn't at full tilt, was he? Wasn't at full tilt. Rodrigo was doing sort of Rodrigo things from time to time. What it's, are Rodrigo things, Phil? <laughs> well, for example, that pass back into I mean, Tyler Adams did seem to apologise for that. He vacated uh, the space that he was in, didn't he? he? He did. Having said that, it was still a ball directly to the, the feet of, of a Leicester player. It was, it was just that thing of stuff in, in going front, wrong. In front of his own goal. Yeah. It was, it was in front of his own it, goal. It was again, that stuff, it? that thing of things things just going wrong. So, yeah, I don't think one win against Fulham is going to be enough to placate the anger that was there last night or more to the point, I suppose, to douse the feeling that this doesn't feel right to a lot of people and, and a lot of people are unconvinced about where it's going. But I guess on the day... That hardly matters, does it? If you look at the league table and consider that it's Fulham at home, it's just a game you've got to win. How do you think Marsh going straight down the tunnel last night plays into this? Because he's he's always faced the crowd, I'm pretty sure, before, even in defeat. I mean, he's quite bizarrely celebrated a couple of home defeats. He'd kind of run around pumping his fists and stuff, which is... Yeah. I, that's never sat quite right with me. But he's always... He has always come out and yesterday he disappeared and the crowd was, were chanting... Yeah, they were where, not... Where on earth is Jesse Marsh? Where on earth singing. is Jesse Marsh? <laughs> yes. They've... Yeah, they weren't happy about did, that. Sorry, did you, see, did you see the BBC report of that? Omitted the F word from the uh, from the sentence. And the crowd was singing, where is Jesse Mahash? It's very, it, very BBC. The, there's that. There's a famous um, video of John Motson where he was covering, uh, I think it was an England youth game. There was no crowd there, um, or very little in the way of a crowd. And one of the coaches one of the coaches on the touchline shouted, and it was so audible, said, switch it to the other side of the fucking pitch. <laughs> to which Motson says, I shout there, I switch it to the other side of the pitch. <laughs> well, well that's, the, that's the explicit tags on this one, if you, if you say so, John. No, they, they, were, they were not happy. He did say sorry afterwards, although he did try to say it wasn't deliberate. It I'm, wasn't sorry a, you, I'm sorry you feel that it, way. It, was, it wasn't a slight on them. He was just, he said he was thinking about what he was going to say to the players about how he was going to react straight away afterwards and, and thinking immediately about the Fulham game which you know will will, will be true um, I think though those really are the games and the occasions where it is best to front up even though you know you're going to get torn to shreds walking over there it's, it's, funny, it's, it's a funny dynamic isn't it it is, it really like, is. On, on the one hand what is to be gained by going over there when you know that <laughs> you know that you're going to get um, you're going to get done in but then on the other you've got such a big away crowd who've gone down and have watched that and are unhappy and I, I think the best thing to do in those circumstances is to front up and to you know to just say okay fair's fair I'd yeah, enjoy yeah. the uh, the football, is it football cliches podcast to deal with matters such as this uh, what is the right distance that you can actually go to the away end to applaud under such circumstances when they're yeah. angry and what's the right physical response to you is it polite applause down by the way Christensen uh, was very much going for lower, low small applause yeah. wasn't he 
I, I don't know if um, I don't know if cliches has addressed that fully, but if he hasn't, I'll ask him on the next um, the next podcast to get into that. I think I think clapping by the waist is probably seen as the 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 most. I guess it's seen as a way of not pretending like you're all together, um, or not pretending that you've had a great um, evening. You're sort of clapping them, saying, "Yeah, you've done your bit. We haven't done our bit." And there probably is there probably is a, a kind of um, average, a bit like a statistical thing that Opta could do. Average distance oh, from angry oh, away no. end. Let's not start on that. <laughs> I, think, I think you need to do your, the same type of applause as you do for a minute's applause at the start. Like a commemorative minute's applause is what you need to go for at the end of a game like that. Just to, just acknowledging this. Here's, yeah. We're all, we're all sad, but we're clapping anyway. Yeah, none of the applause is for us, basically. Yeah, it's for, it's for other people. I'd say, you know, we've played around with that up to start. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek of, you know, you've got a 96% chance of staying up if you get eight points in your first five games. You were not tongue-in-cheek, Dan. You said it was a fact. No. <laughs> no. It, well, it, it is a fact in the sense that it's a 96% chance of staying up. What, the problem is, it? if there's a club that can find that 4%, it's Leeds United, isn't it? Because, I mean, who on earth expects after you've got your eight points, which is exactly what we've got, wasn't it? It was eight from five, to then get one point from the next five games. Chelsea was the opportunity at which... Was the opportunity to build and establish proper rapport uh, between Marsh and the crowd, and and a, a really strong relationship between Marsh and the crowd, because it was excellent that day. And a lot of people came away saying to me, "That's as well as I can remember us playing for years." You know, and especially in the Premier League, you know, best performance in the Premier League for you know for so long. But even even alone for the fact that Leeds were out of the Premier League for so long, people said once you start thinking back into the the latter seasons in that division it, it really did stand out and you felt a shift in mood I I felt in, on that afternoon like it was a, a bit of a it was a bit of a moving on experience from Bielsa where people were able to say okay do you know what let's embrace this let's go with this and see how it is and, and I don't think Brighton away was a game Leeds were likely to get a huge amount from it was a difficult fixture um, didn't play particularly well down there but that in isolation wasn't a problem it's the fact that since Chelsea, it has just declined pretty drastically to the extent that Chelsea feels so long ago, now so long ago that you can't remember it clearly enough and you can't feel the energy of it um, enough. Have we, have we it, forgotten what it feels like to feel happy? I think forgotten possibly what it feels like to feel happy. I think lacking a vision at the moment as well. I think lacking a definite idea of where this is going and, and where it's supposed to be going. It's nine, nine weeks since we won a game. Uh, yeah, and not a really I mean, basic uh, level. Just, just forgotten how to score a bloody goal. Yeah, I mean, things like that. But I, I guess in the bigger picture, the previous head coach, it was perfectly clear what everybody was building towards and what was wanted, what the aim was, how, how, you know, what people wanted the team to be. I think even now, th- there are some really good under-21s at Leeds. But you can't say with total confidence that in four or five years' time, despite the strategy being at that age group level for them to develop and come through and, and to then start to make up the first team you can't feel totally confident about in three or four years time the team being made up of the, the 21s who, who are at Leeds at the moment and I mean, look at Charlie Croswell he hasn't been in the matchday squad at Millwall for four games well, since you no, went to see him I think Phil. basically since I went to see him it's um, well, well not quite but um, it's close <laughs> It's close enough for me to get the blame yeah I think so and basically Millwall have switched from a back three to a back four so they only need two centre-backs in the team, but he's not even in the squad. And, and if that persists, um, I think it's highly likely that he'll be back in January and, and look to go elsewhere. I don't see anybody wanting to stick that out. If there's your, if there's your quote, not, clickbait sites. If he's, well, yeah, but if he's not playing, I mean, you know, that's the point. There is a recall clause in yeah. January. The whole point of him going to Millwall was to, was to get games. But when I 
when I was writing about Bamford earlier this week, I was saying that the more you look at it, the more you realise that you've got one player who is is, is just in a battle with his fitness at the moment, and one player who for two years has been, I don't know quite quite know what really, you know, Rodrigo, it just has, hasn't really worked. So they're your experience group. But then below them, if you're saying to Mars, try something different, you re- unless you're going to move Harrison up front or Sinistera, you're talking about Gelhart and you're talking about Nonto, you're talking about um, Fernandez. You know, yes, you could give those players a go, but they've got little or no experience. So who on earth is to say that that's going to work? Where's the evidence that that's going to work? And in hang be- on a second, we, we were sold the path. I feel like, you, but this yeah, is yeah. But is- if you let me finish, in between. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, in, Phil. I'm being told off by Dad now. It was a bit like, uh, it sounded like politics, that, didn't it? <laughs> Getting interviewed by Chris Mason. If I just finish my point. In between, there's nothing. In between, there's nothing. You've got these two experienced players who are having battles of their own to, you know, to settle and to, to be consistent. And then below them, it's under 21s and... It's not enough. Well, I'm still saying it's a, it's a deliberate policy choice of yours, um, Prime Minister. <laughs> and, to ask, and to ask another question, where is the evidence that Rodrigo is going to work? Because he's, well, there isn't any. But he he's constantly in the team, isn't he? He's he's the he's either the starting option or he's the first off the bench. Absolutely, because and, and, it, is... and it never works. We've been, but the thing is, I mean, we say it's, it's nine weeks since we we won a game. It's a, what about the same period of time or longer? People are saying, get a forward, sign a striker. Where is it? <laughs> Imagine we, we got one. Phil just, Phil, for the benefit of the listeners, yeah. Phil just held his arm wide. He shrugged, yeah. <laughs> and we, got, we brought little Willie in and he's not even had any minutes yet. So I don't know. Anyway, but we, we could go around in circles on this for ages. To actual Sunday and the football, um, talking about centre-forwards, Mitrovic offers a different proposition to someone like um, Jesus at Arsenal, doesn't he? Because Mitrovic is big, he's physical. He's not necessarily somebody you'd associate with Balls getting dropped in behind and him running onto them. He's going to be looking to get involved in the box, isn't he? Rather than uh, trying to play off the shoulder of the last defender. Yes, your um, defending at set pieces needs to be bang on. Cooper, I think if Cooper starts and surely he will, is going to have a very busy day there. But even aside from Mitrovic, Leeds just need to dominate this game. They need to dominate this game. They need to. They need to win it. They need to win it. So, no, can't, can't really put it in more simple terms than that. And I think because of the circumstances. He needs to revert back to, you know, he needs to revert back to the high percentage choice of players, simple decisions. So play Harrison, Sinistera, Aronson. You're going to have to go with Bamford up front, I think, unless he wants to give Gilhart a go. And I think if you're going to give anybody else a go other than Rodrigo, I think it has to be Gilhart. Don't get me wrong, I, I agree with you about Nonto, but I don't imagine you could tell me the first thing about him, really. Could you, in, in, as a Premier League player? No. Because I haven't seen him. No. I haven't seen him. So, is this a good game to be taking that gamble? If you did it and it worked, you would say fantastic. But if you did it and it didn't work, you would say, why on earth, with the pressure on like this, are you playing a untested eighteen-year-old? We we put on a variety of so-called established Premier League footballers last night at Leicester, and that didn't work. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Um, so, what we're saying is, nothing works. Don't try anything. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, but it. Does and it has, you know, there have been occasions where it has worked, but I think, I think what we see in so many performances is fits and starts. So you have periods where, you know, the periods where they look like they could get something from the game, it doesn't happen. Like last night, they were on the front foot to begin with. You know, they were they were relatively dominant against Leicester. Then they concede. Then the game gets away from them, and that is how how it is. 
and it's not a it's not a formula to get you anywhere particularly in the league. But they just need to they need to but win. It's a formula we'll be sticking with on Sunday. <laughs> Well, that's the question, isn't it? That brings us right back to where we started, which is for how much longer do they persist with said formula? Well, Jesse said he's been well-backed and everyone's together and all that sort of stuff. And Victor Alter definitely isn't on the phone to anybody else. I was going to well, say, did, did, well, it strike you as, did it strike you as a touch naive, Phil? Because it's something that you mentioned actually earlier in this show that they were speaking to Jesse Marsh for months before Bielsa went. So Jesse talking about them backing Bielsa right until the very, very end. He was on the phone to him. They're having secret chats. Well, he'd been on the phone um, kind of two years earlier, but I, I've said a few times, I totally understand that in the circumstances with Bielsa because of his contract. And I don't think any club are overly bright if they get completely caught out by having to sack a manager and then saying, has anybody thought about who else you might go for? No, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll sit down for dinner later on and, and see what's out there. You have to, you know, sometimes you have to react really quickly with this stuff as, as Villa are going to have to try and do after sacking Gerrard. But it would be it would be naive in these circumstances not to at least have it at the back of your mind that you that you think and and you suspect that um, you might have to to make a change with this. But, but as I said, the the message I was getting and and the way I saw it after um, Leicester was that he would still be here for the Fulham game. Just with reference to Villa, sorry, it just um, sparked a thought off. Did that in that you look at what Villa have done? They just sacked Gerrard. Obviously, they're now looking to put a new manager in. It doesn't feel like. It, it's the same problem almost because Villa have got pots of money. They've spent pots of money. It looks like maybe they just need to find the right coach to get the best out of that squad. Whereas with Leeds, you know, Michael, sort of, I don't know if it's if it's true or if he's exaggerating for the purposes of this. No, it's, it's true because I know you, um, about chucking it all in the bin. With Leeds, it does feel like that, doesn't it? It feels like if this goes wrong now, it's a case for chucking Marsh in the bin, for Orta in the bin. It extends to the whole ownership. But you wouldn't necessarily say the same about Villa because the ownership there is is backing their managers come hell or high water. Whereas at Leeds, it just feels like the whole thing, the whole project, not feels like it's hanging by a thread, but manager goes wrong, director of football goes wrong, it's all transferred back to the ownership. They feel vulnerable. I think that's fair to say. Looking at Villa's squad, I, I think there are good players there. I genuinely do. I actually think that about Leicester as well, if I'm being quite honest. You know, they've had, they've had a really dismal start. What about Leeds, but Phil? There are so There's some really good players at Leicester. I, I don't think it's a complete team at Leeds. I don't think it is. I don't think it's a complete squad. And you're seeing that up front. You're seeing that on the left side of defence. As I say, I think I think they are vulnerable and I think they've been vulnerable since the start of Bielsa's last season. I wrote in my post-Arsenal piece that they haven't been on a roll for 18 months, this team. It's 18 months, really, to, to go back to the West Brom game at the end of the first Premier League season where Leeds were flying and they haven't since that point, and they don't look like they're about to with any great haste either. This is, I mean, in, in the grand scheme, even forgetting about Mars, it's a pretty critical game, this Fulham match, because it's Liverpool next. Then they've got Bournemouth at home, which you'd like to think is very winnable, but again, they've started pretty well. And then it's Tottenham away, which is not going to be an easy game. That doesn't leave a vast number of opportunities for points on the board before the World Cup. And when the World Cup comes round, they've got to be... Um, they've got to be in a better position than this. They have to be, otherwise it, it it just commits you to a pretty stressful second half of the season. Right then, um, one positive to take from from last night as Andrew Goldstein has, uh, has tweeted, as pointing out that VAR, we've not discussed VAR or refs once from last night, so that's the one one, one positive. I think it was one of those games that was, it was such a disappointing game to watch. You couldn't even bring yourself to be annoyed about anything. There were decisions I thought, oh, we should have probably had a 
book in there, whatever. But then equally, you go, oh, don't make any difference, does it? <laughs> this <laughs> is a, the world collapse and chuck it all at the in the bin. A, yeah. In a game like that, you think oh, the refs made no impact on that game, as it was. No, I, thought it was the ref, I thought it was a good game last night. It, it, it was perfectly yeah. fine. That's your man it? of the match. Oh, probably, yeah, yeah. I think so. It was, it was very difficult to pick out anybody else. It wasn't even like Melee had that much to do. You know, it wasn't like Leicester were laying it on thick and um, and, and Leeds were getting completely hammered. It was very, very much... It was one of those nights, wasn't it, in every respect? Yes. Right, well, um, we'll can it there and return on Monday to see what Sunday brings at Ellen Road versus Fulham. Looking forward to it? Immensely. Always. <laughs> <laughs> we'll speak to you after the weekend. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.